0: Good morning. So it may seem counterintuitive, but it's actually easier to preach on shorter sections of Scripture as opposed to longer ones, because you can really dial in and focus on what's going on in those two or three sentences. And last week, Dave Humiston, when he opened up, he addressed this challenge when he compared the four verses about Lydia that Larry Olson had preached on the week before to the ten chapters that he preached about on Jacob. Now, not that this is a competition or anything, <laughs> but there are 129 chapters about David. Okay, so we're going to be summarizing a lot today. <laughs> I kind of get the sense that I'm this, this summer's Mikey. Remember Mikey? Give it to him, he'll try it, right? So I actually have to start on a bit of a downer note, Um, but it's important to do that because we're here to learn lessons about life from David, and David's life was hard. So please, if you will just bear with me for a moment or two. I just want to share that I've come across several people in my lifetime who frankly make me really sad because they elicit in me the idea or the image of the walking dead. They've spent their lives in sin and all-out rebellion, serving themselves at the expense of others, and they've done that for so long that they've driven everyone away, and now they're bitter and alone. doesn't matter if they're rich or poor. Money only changes your environment, and your environment is not light, so it can't drive away darkness. Jesus stands at the doors of their hearts and knocks, just like ours, and they occasionally hear him and maybe peek out from the darkness in desperation. And family and friends and neighbors, churches, programs like Celebrate Recovery respond to that through God's providence. But then they often just turn right back around and climb back into the darkness, maybe because it's familiar, maybe because Continued darkness is less terrifying than the idea of confessing their sins out loud. Whatever it is, at the root of it, is pride. Rather than admit that they've crawled into a hole that is too deep to get out of on their own power, they just sit there, anchored by their own pride. Once Adam and Eve had eaten the fruit, they realized their own nakedness and it was pride that caused them to hide from God. Shame and embarrassment are rooted in pride. It's truly a heartbreaking thing to witness, and I bet that just about everybody in this room can think of one or two people that fit that description. We've all heard that, probably heard that famous Bible verse, John 3:16. but just as important as the glorious promise of that verse is the hard truth that comes after it. So please listen along as I read this full section in context. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. And this is the judgment There but by the grace of God go I. There isn't a single person in this world for whom that kind of life is or was impossible, depending entirely upon whether or not we've believed in the name of Jesus. But for the grace, mercy, and forgiveness of a loving God who sacrificed his life for us, we could all have gotten there. We could all have been the walking dead this is what the Bible calls being a slave to sin or yoked to sin. And until we encounter the saving grace of Christ, we all are yoked to sin. So it's with that backdrop that I wanna talk about the life of David. So even major players in biblical history are often almost caricatures relative to the amount of information about David. And that makes him unique in terms of relatability we actually get a peek into his mind and heart like nobody else. And here's the thing, by all accounts, David should have ended up like one of those walking dead, except for one thing. One thing kept him from that fate and instead made him someone that God used mightily. We'll get to that one thing in a bit, but first let's fill in some detail on the kind of guy that David was. So David was the youngest by far of seven brothers. And for some unspecified reason, his brothers hated him, and he was considered an outcast in his family. He was a black sheep, even to his own father. When the prophet Samuel followed God's command to go to the house of Jesse, David's father, in order to seek out and anoint the king that would replace Saul, Jesse didn't even invite David to come before Samuel. His dad left him in the fields where he'd sent him to do servant's work, tending sheep. From 2 Samuel chapter 16, Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So David arrives and Saul anoints him as the next king in front of his brothers who hated him and his father who dismissed him. We get a further account of his family's feelings toward David when his dad sends him on another lowly servant's mission to bring food to his brothers who are fighting and ask in return that he bring news back. So when David arrives, the army of Israel was in the midst of having been terrorized and mocked by the giant Goliath who came forward every day and challenged them to a fight and then sneered at their fear as they turned and ran from him. Second Samuel chapter 17, as he was talking with them, this is David, some of the soldiers, Goliath, the Philistine, champion uh, champion from Gath, stepped out from the lines and shouted his usual defiance and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. And David responds to this by asking the soldiers what King Saul is gonna do about it, and his, his brother Eliab catches him. The scripture says he, Eliab, burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle, you little brat. One of the interesting things about David, as he's portrayed in the Bible, is that these matters are the first we hear about him. We pick up his life, when he's pretty young, 14, maybe up to 20, and he's the family member that the family wishes they never had. But why? We don't know hardly anything about his childhood. In fact, we don't even know who his mother is, which is kind of strange for a character who is so prolific and so talked about in Scripture. But David knew, he knew his background, which may be what he writes about in Psalm 51 when he says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin, my mother conceived me. What's he mean by that? Well, the truth is we don't know. There's a lot of interpretations of that verse. There's also a ton of speculation in the Mishnah and the Talmud, which are the written and oral traditions of Jewish history And to be honest, I kind of went down a little rabbit hole in researching that and found some pretty fascinating stuff. I can't talk about it here because I don't have enough time, but if you guys want to research that, just Google the Mission in the Talmud and David's mom, and whoa, it's fascinating. Really interesting stuff. But suffice it to say, he was an outcast in his family from birth. So David was an outcast whose family hated him, but aside from that massive family dysfunction, he was actually a pretty remarkable guy. And here's where I'm going to sum up about 100 chapters in the next 10 seconds. So we know from Scripture that he was incredibly handsome. He was remarkably strong and courageous. He was an incredibly effective warrior. He understood military strategy and could employ it to great impact. First, cha- First Chronicles chapter 18 is titled, a list of David's victories in war, an entire chapter of the battle, or of the Bible, about David's victories, and it doesn't even cover all of them. So we have a picture so far of a type of man who, while exceptional, is relatively easy to wrap our heads around. He's a smart, capable, dangerous man, kind of one-dimensional there. But he had other qualities as well, which don't often go alongside those first qualities. Number one, he was a poet. Not just any poet. David could write poetry that 3,000 years later is still quoted by Jews, Christians, and even atheists. He was a tender-hearted, exceptional warrior poet. David could also sing. Now, there's a spectrum on the ability to sing. When I was younger, I was in a karaoke bar, and I paid for five Frankie Valley songs. About 30 seconds into the first song, they shut off my mic <laughs> and gave me a refund. <laughs> so I'm on I'm on one end of that spectrum. I love music. I, I genuinely love music, but I can't sing. There's also people who are on the other end of that spectrum. People who can absolutely take your breath away with how they can sing. David was there. He could sing like no tomorrow. He could also play instruments. In fact. He could play so well that it made demons flee. And you can read about that in 1 Samuel Samuel chapter 16. Not only could he play instruments, he invented instruments, and he directed them to be played with what must have been overwhelming power. In 2017, there was an outfit called Rockin' 1000, and they put together what was called the largest band on the planet, and they played a Nirvana song. This was an entire stadium full of instruments and singers. A thousand people. Can you imagine that? Well, in First Chronicles 23, David's band is described. Four thousand were gatekeepers, and four thousand praised the Lord with musical instruments, which I made, said David, for giving praise. Can you imagine four thousand instruments being played at the same time. Just absolutely astonishing. Psalm 98 is just one of the pictures, or one of the Psalms where David proclaims his desire to fill the entire earth and sea with music. It's my kind of guy. My wife will tell you, she comes home sometimes and she can hear the music from the street. So David was a multi-talented, intelligent, uh, pragmatic, compassionate, and wise. He was charismatic and magnetic. People were drawn to him, and they willingly gave themselves to serve him with absolute loyalty. Throughout his life, David served God in incredible ways, and he sought to understand him, and he utilized his poetic and musical talent to describe God in what are easily some of the most intimate sections of Scripture, leading his people then and still today to love and know the Lord. David was also hyper-violent. David lived 3,000 years ago in the time of the transition between the bronze and iron age. Iron, which could cut through bronze like hot butter, was so new and incredible that the Bible makes specific mention of the fact that Goliath's sword was made from iron. Life was generally short, cheap, and usually came to a violent end. And David was a huge part of that culture. Besides all the wars he fought and the nations that he conquered, two civil wars were fought during his reign. A study was done that attempted to assign a number to how many people David was responsible for killing, and they came up with 300,000 people, many of whom David killed with his own hands. At the time, that's 4% of the entire global population. If you extrapolate that to today, that would equal 280 million people. He was incredibly violent. He was also often conniving and self-serving. Probably his most famous sin was with Bathsheba. Bathsheba was the wife of his friend and closest confidant, Uriah. One night during many of the wars that, uh, that time, Uriah was out fighting while David sat in his palace and David saw Bathsheba bathing in an act of supreme arrogance, seduced her and slept with her. She became pregnant, and David employed his intellect in an attempt to escape accountability. He called Uriah back from the battlefield, hoping that he would sleep with his wife, and thus the baby could reasonably assume to be his. But Uriah was so devoted to David and to his position as the commander that he refused to take such a leisure, and instead he slept on the floor outside David's bedroom all night, guarding him. It says, Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. So David sent him back to battle with a letter. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. He sent him with his own letter of execution. The worst kind of diabolical. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that he had done displeased the Lord. And that certainly wasn't all David did. In his arrogance and conceitedness, he instructed his number two, Joab, to perform a census of the fighting men of Israel. No big deal, right? Well, God had given specific instructions not to do this as doing so without God's command was considered an act of pride on the king's king's part. Kind of like saying, how many men do I have under my command? It was a total prideful act. And Joab, who was instructed to do this, knew it was arrogant, and he tried to talk David out of it. He said, may the Lord multiply his troops a hundred times over, my lord the king. Are they not all the Lord's subjects? Why does my lord want to do this? Why should he bring guilt on Israel? But David's arrogance took the reins, so Joab counted 1.1 million men, but he didn't fully obey David's command. But Joab did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering because the king's command was so repulsive to him. This command was also evil in the sight of God, so he punished Israel, and that punishment of pestilence resulted in the death of 70,000 people. Dire consequences surrounded David all of his life because of his choices. The baby that he had with Bathsheba got sick and died. His son, Amnon, raped his daughter, Tamar. His other son, Absalom, murdered Amnon for this act and then later rebelled against David in an act of insurrection and actually had sex with all of his mistresses in front of him. And David himself, whose greatest desire was to build the temple in Jerusalem, the city he had conquered, was denied this honor. All the way through to the end, David's life was marked by turmoil with his last act being preventing his son Absalom from seizing the throne from his other son Solomon, whom God had chosen to be the next king. David was a highly complex, highly nuanced genius. His arrogance, be it from a traumatic childhood, severe dysfunction in his family, pride in his own incredible, remarkably, incredibly remarkable qualities and abilities, or some combination of all of them could easily have been his downfall, resulting in an old age of loneliness, emptiness, and hopelessness, just sitting around waiting for the pain to end in death. That makes him even with all of his incredible qualities, at the very least, relatable. You see, arrogance and pride are as much a part of who we are as our blood cells. If left on our own, arrogance and pride will lead to self-destruction and the destruction of the world that is within our reach. The fact is, because of that arrogance and pride, we are all unusable. If left to our own devices, we would all either use our power for destructive, self-serving purposes, or we would abdicate that power to the forces of evil in this world, which is known as apathy. That happens to folks all the time. Now, you might think, what's this power you're talking about? Not like David. I don't have any power. I'm nobody special. I don't have much to offer. What good can I do in this world? What impact can I make? Well, to answer that question, I'd like for you to take a second and look at yourself from the opposite end of that spectrum, asking these questions. How much damage could you do? Who can you hurt, and how badly can you hurt them? And that doesn't have to mean physical pain. Maybe you aren't physically strong, but how much emotional damage can you inflict with your words? When I was young, I asked my grandfather to take me shooting for the first time. For a long time, I'd wanted to, and I finally worked up the courage to ask him. So he took me out in the backyard. He had a gun, and he showed me how to use it, and he loaded it, and he put it in my hand, and I brought it up to the target, and I was about to pull the trigger, and he said, stop. And I looked at him, And he said, if you pull that trigger, there isn't a thing you can do after that. You can throw that gun on the ground, you can kick dirt on it, you can pull all your hair out, you can scream, you can shout, you can wish, but that bullet already left the barrel and it's gonna hit whatever is in its path and it's gonna destroy it. So before you pull that trigger, you had better be sure what's on the other end of it. That was a profound lesson to me. And later on in life, it dawned on me that there's another thing that has very similar characteristics to a bullet. That's a word. Once you let a word pass your lips, you can't put it back. And whatever it hits, it's gonna hurt. So be careful with your words doesn't even have to be words you use to hurt people. you ever hurt anybody with your silence? You may have never thought about yourself this way, but you are powerful. And if you considered that in the light of the amount of damage that you could inflict, then ask yourself this question. How much good could you do if instead of relinquishing your power to the ways of this world or to pride, you turn that power over to God? 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but is from this world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. The ways of the world would have you use everything you are and everything you have to serve yourself The lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh are the idolatry and covetousness of what you don't have. And the pride of life is the idolatry of what you are and what you do have. And at the end of this path, no matter how quickly or slowly you walk down it, is destruction. We see in David's life so many examples of how this idolatry sees parts of him and how he lusted after and coveted what he didn't have and how he idolized what he did have. And when he loved these things or sought after them, they led to destruction. So he was certainly an exceptional person, David was, but that doesn't mean he's not, he's unrelatable. After all is said and done, no matter how mighty, how mighty David was, no matter how talented, no matter how much wealth or power was at his disposal, he was simply a sinful person just like us. He fell short of the glory of God just like us. And if he's in the same boat as the rest of us, well, we can relate to him and learn from him. And the lessons of David's dramatic, highly complex, legendary life are actually pretty simple. You see, David sought to understand God, and he came to know that God was bigger than his sin. He understood that God was eternally and immeasurably merciful and gracious, that God wanted communion with his people, his creation, and that there were no limits to what God would do to call them to him and to receive them when they came. David had an understanding of how big God is, and because of that understanding, the first lesson we can learn from him is how he responded when he faced his own sin. And this is the one thing that kept him from becoming one of the walking dead. What David did is he fell into complete and true, unreserved confession and repentance. Psalm 51 says, for the director of music, a Psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, David starts off saying, have mercy on me, O God according to your unfailing love. Now, this isn't just for David or during David's time. This is exactly what God has done in Christ Jesus. It's in Jesus coming and dying on the cross for our sins, even before we were born, that we see the clearest definition of the steadfast love and abundant mercy of God. Romans 5.8 says, but clearly God demonstrates his own love for us in this, While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the question is, have you believed in Christ and come to him for forgiveness? Well, David wrote Psalm 51 as a song of all-out confession about his affair with Bathsheba. And he provides it to the director of music with the expectation that it would be sung by that 4,000-member band before the entire nation of Israel. Can you imagine how that conversation went? Are you crazy? Why would you want to make this known to the entire world? If we sing this, you'll be impeached. You'll lose the the faith of the entire nation. Everybody will know your sin, your dirt, your weakness, your vulnerability. Why would you want your people to know that? But David knew three things about his sin, and I mean, he really understood them. One, He knew that his sin was already completely known to and ultimately against God. He continues in Psalm 51, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. He also knew that his sin affected the entire nation. He was the king and the nation that he ruled over was dirty because of his actions. David ends his confessional with these words, pleading for God's mercy for the nation of Israel. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. David understood the truth that when we sin, it affects others. We never sin in a vacuum. Our sin hurts those around us according to whatever our circles of influence are, and our sin dishonors God. We see this pronouncement on David when God confronts him about his sin with Bathsheba through his prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Nathan says to him, Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord and given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child that is born to you shall surely die. The third thing that he understood was that God's mercy was entirely dependent on God's character and not on any effort or quality of himself. He said, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my, my transgressions. So confession and repentance. The second way in which God responded to, or David responded to God was meekness. God declares in, in Matthew chapter five, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Now, meekness is a weird word. Over about the last month, I've asked maybe five or six people what that word meant, and invariably, they gave me the same answer, which follows what dictionary.com and Merriam-Webster have, and it means, according to the world, docile, overly compliant, spiritless, yielding, or tame, mild, deficient in courage, submissive, and weak. So basically, a meek person is a sniveling coward. And this is who Jesus holds up as who will inherit the earth? No. A meek person is actually the polar opposite of that. Meekness is not weakness or cowardice. It's actually power under control. Consider the horse for a moment. Horses are powerful and effective. If left to their own, they'll wander around looking beautiful, make little baby horses, and they'll eat. But a bridled horse, a horse that has chosen to submit its power and its incredible characteristics to a competent and compassionate rider can do glorious, effective things. The whole world measures mechanical strength in horsepower. That submission doesn't negate any of its power and beauty. It just channels it. The idea of reigning in a stallion is actually the definition of the word meek in the original biblical language. So meekness is our power under God's control, and the reason why that's a good thing is because God's control is perfect and gentle and humble, compassionate, merciful, and just. Matthew 11, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Folks, you're powerful, and you're more than capable of doing damage. You can destroy. You can destroy a relationship. You can destroy life. We do have that kind of power, and all of us can look around and see what happens when that power is used by a sinful person under their, under their own flawed will? The only difference is in who we choose to be bridal to. Do we choose sin, a master who hates us and only wants our destruction, or do we choose God? David's life is vividly in, described in God's word for us to see how a mighty man with all of the characteristics that are enviable in this world could sin time and time again when he didn't allow God to take the reins of his life, and in doing so, he destroyed one life after another. But his life is also described so vividly in order to put on full display the character of our perfectly merciful God. In other words, if God has the capacity to forgive a man like David, he can forgive us too. We are called to meekness. We are called to willingly give over control of our will to the Creator, whose love for each and every one of us is pure. So if I can restate Matthew 5.5, blessed are the stallions reigned in by God, for they will inherit the earth. When David chose that route, his life was beautiful He was content and at peace. He honored and glorified God. He displayed the qualities of Christ. So the simple lessons from David's incredible life are as follows, one, be meek. Let God take the reins of your life. Take every thought captive to Christ. And what that means is considering every word you say and every action you take and putting it under the spotlight of God's characteristics to see if it passes muster. When you do this, not only will you not sin, but you'll be usable by God and he'll do mighty things through you. And two, when you fail to be meek and you do sin, confess and repent. Run to the Father again and again, whose mercies are new every morning. So I started with David's beginning and I want to end with his end. As we read this, these final words of David, I want you to take notice of something. He opens this final prayer with what seems like praise for himself. But he then follows that with total humility and submission, acknowledging that only by the grace of God is he the man who he describes. From 2 Samuel 23, these are the last words of David the inspired utterance of David, son of Jesse, the utterance of the man exalted by the Most High, the man anointed by the God of Jacob, the hero of Israel's songs. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The Rock of Israel said to me, when one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. Folks, why don't you stand with us and we'll sing the final song together. Thank you.